This is The Guardian. Today, with Russian troops massing on the border of Ukraine, can Vladimir Putin be persuaded to back down? and Ukraine tonight. The White House calling this an extremely dangerous situation, claiming military action by Russia could happen at any moment. Today, more Russian troops and hardware arriving in Belarus to Ukraine's north for war games. Ukrainian troops are watching and waiting, saying they are preparing for a fight. This is an extremely dangerous situation. We're now at a stage where Russia could at any point launch an attack in Ukraine. The headlines are terrifying. Eastern Europe looks like it's on the verge of a bloody conflict. One of the most surprising things about the build-up for this war, or this conflict, is walking around Moscow, you would have no idea that anything is happening at all. But for Andrew Roth, who's based in Russia for The Guardian, the strangest thing about living in a country mobilising for a major war is how little sign of it there is on the streets of the capital. The lack of kind of discussion of the build-up and the fact that this is a country that could be in a sort of generational conflict in just weeks is completely absent here. But the hints are there of something seismic stirring. For anybody just looking at their bank account, the first thing you notice is that the ruble has lost about 6% of its value since the beginning of January and about 10% of its value uh, since October. For Russians who want to buy iPhones, who are buying other stuff that's made in the West, cars, you know, that's obviously going to affect just, you know, what they're able to buy. And so people are noticing that the currency is beginning to really take a hit. Not far away, on the border with Ukraine, more than 100,000 Russian soldiers are stationed with tanks and artillery conducting military exercises, a force large enough to invade if ordered to do so. A lot of Russians have a sense that there is something kind of bubbling down at the borders and that there are a lot of Russian troops down there. But the story that they're mainly being told is actually that it's a build-up on both sides. So there's a lot of focus on the idea that either NATO from the West or Ukraine uh, have started to heat up the conflict in Donbass, in eastern Ukraine again, uh, and that Russia is, is sort of responding to that. Uh, but they don't really have a sense that Russia has really held this unprecedented build-up on the border with Ukraine. As politicians urge Vladimir Putin to back down, and the Russian leader demands NATO forces leave Eastern Europe, the world waits. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, how a Russian war in Ukraine could play out and how it could be stopped. Andrew, for weeks we've seen headlines about an escalating Russian military presence along the Ukrainian border. In terms of troop numbers, what's going on? What we've seen from Russia uh, is mainly the pre-positioning of a massive amount of weaponry along the border with Ukraine. You know, things like rocket artillery, tanks, um, even short-range ballistic missiles. Russian fighter jets and missiles arrived in neighbouring Belarus, where war games are set to begin. In terms of troop numbers, the estimated number is about 125,000 troops. More than 100,000 Russian troops are now poised to potentially invade from the north 
east and south of Ukraine. Another way to talk about this and what analysts usually say is that Russia has about 70 battalion tactical groups or BTGs uh, at the front line. And that's about a third of the total number in the Russian army. So we can say that there's about a third of the total Russian army strength on the border with Ukraine right now. That's a really vast number. What about on the other side, in Ukraine or from NATO allies? The Ukrainians have also started to deploy troops towards the border. Ukraine's army is readying itself for further conflict with Russia, holding drills near annexed Crimea in case its eastern neighbor invades. Saying basically in the same way that they're sort of reacting of the kind of buildup, particularly in Belarus, at the moment where Russian eastern military districts are sending troops there for large exercises that are going to take place in February. So there is a buildup in Ukraine as well, but it's hardly at the same rate or at the, the sort of same size. Зараз всі новини та інформаційний простір сповнені схожими повідомленнями. When the Ukrainian government, you know, both military leaders and also the leader of the country, Volodymyr Zelensky, has talked to Ukrainians, he's really told Ukrainians above all to remain calm. Вже не один день. There's a much stronger sense in that country that, maybe like here, that either they don't expect a war to take place or they just feel like this kind of sense of panic and the sense of fear about it won't really have any effect on it. Meanwhile, NATO naval exercises are taking place south of Crimea in the Mediterranean, and 90 tons of military aid just arrived in Kyiv from the United States. We're also seeing some sort of, I would say, token uh, redeployments uh, of NATO forces towards uh, Eastern Europe. Things like a couple of fighter jets, an aircraft carrier or, or a cruiser or other ships. Secretary Austin has placed a range of units in the United States on a heightened preparedness to deploy, which increases our readiness to provide forces if NATO should activate the NRF, or if other situations develop. And the U.S. has put about 8,500 troops on standby. These are mostly to kind of reinforce or reassure allies of the U.S. and NATO uh, on the eastern flank, countries like Poland or the Baltic states. And Russia hasn't said that they're preparing to invade, have they? Like, what's their excuse for this massive buildup? Russia, in general, hasn't really explained the buildup so far uh, very comprehensively. Mainly what they've said when they've been criticized is we have the right to move troops around our own borders as we wished. We're not breaking any laws. Uh, we haven't attacked anybody. So we don't have to explain ourselves. And the NATO Secretary General saying yesterday that there's a real risk of armed conflict in Europe. That's, that's NATO threatening with this. We, we are not threatening. Nothing threatening about 100,000 troops on Ukraine's border. <laughs> Thank you very much, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Modern war is about heavy machinery and troops, but it's also digital in some respects. Are we seeing a cyber war element to what's going on there? To a large degree, in terms of cyber, the groundwork has been laid for years uh, before this. You know, we've seen big cyber attacks on Ukrainian utilities. The Ukrainian president's top security official has a strong suspicion who's behind a massive cyber attack on his country. But just recently, we saw another cyber attack on the Ukrainian foreign ministry and on some other uh, government institutions. With a warning to Ukrainians to be afraid and expect the worst, the cyber attack began at about 2 a.m. local time and hit around 70 government websites. That really reflects that the Russians and maybe the Belarusians are kind of preparing in case of an attack to have ways that would really try to paralyze the kind of Ukrainian infrastructure that would make it more difficult to fight back. 
Okay, so we're seeing a huge military build-up. We're seeing attacks online. And now intelligence agencies in both the UK and US say they've seen evidence of secret plots to spark a conflict. And more than that, about Russian plans to eventually install a pro-Moscow leader in Ukraine. What kind of details are emerging? You know, pretty much everybody agrees uh, to a certain degree that, that the Russians are involved in internal Ukrainian politics, that they're looking for people who can kind of project their influence in the country. So far, we've seen descriptions of two plots of, of Russia basically using Ukrainian political actors to either undermine the kind of unity of the country against an attack. The Foreign Office released this statement. We have information that indicates the Russian government is looking to install a pro-Russian leader in Kiev. Or in the case of the UK, to actually identify a person who could replace the president of the country in case of a, of a Russian invasion, kind of quizzling in waiting. Do you believe that? I do believe that. It's not the first time they're trying to do so, historically, and even in recent times. And by the way, all the names you mentioned, and th th these people actually were helped from Ukraine to Russia, and they now reside in Russia by Russian special services. In many cases, we haven't seen too many details of the plots. It, it does seem like there is a certain amount of guesswork in this, this intelligence, and that if there is kind of more compelling evidence behind it, that it needs to be protected because of the kind of sources and methods that are used by intelligence actors. Andrew, at this point, military action in Ukraine seems at least probable. If it were to happen, what would it look like? Well, it's hard to say exactly, but there are at least three ways that this could go. And if you speak to analysts about this question, there's even more kind of descriptions of what Russia could do. One idea is a sort of attack based on coercive diplomacy. What Russia could do is they could take advantage of the kind of footholds that they already have in Ukraine. Since 2014, Russia has been backing two separatist parts of Ukraine, Donetsk and Lugansk. Russia could go forth and decide to recognize their independence from Ukraine. That would be a big step, and that's something that I think could anger uh, the Ukrainian side quite a bit. And the Kremlin might think that that might also goad them into to some sort of attack. So this could be a way of manufacturing a crisis and a way of creating a kind of limited conflict in the country. Okay, so that would be provocative, essentially trying to dare Ukraine into attacking Russia or doing something that would spark an invasion. But what if Russia actually decided to just unilaterally send soldiers into Ukraine? So this is the second scenario that people talk about. And of course, we're always still guessing a little bit at exactly what the aims and goals of a Russian campaign might be. But if Russia does send troops into Ukraine openly, then that makes it possible for them to have uh, much more ambitious goals. One idea is that beyond kind of just recognizing the independence of these states in the East, they could move forward and actually try to capture new land. The discussions of what the possible contingencies could be uh, are pretty wide um, and pretty diverse. You know, everything from the idea of creating a land bridge that goes from Crimea, the peninsula that they annexed in 2014, to Russia, to the idea of seizing another city like Odessa. This would obviously be extremely painful for the Ukrainian side because we're discussing something that would almost be uh, be a partition of the country, loss of millions of citizens, um, and probably an extremely, extremely heated battle, uh, particularly in these cities, to kind of 
fight basically for the, for the future of, of which country these, these cities are going to be in. One thing is that this would require enormous amounts of resolve on the Russian side, not only because uh, obviously this is a lot of land to take over and to conquer, but also because of controlling it, I think, would be extremely difficult. One thing to keep in mind is that Ukraine has undergone a real transformation uh, in the last seven or eight years, and it's possible and, and likely we would see a much stronger response and resistance from both the Ukrainian army and just average Ukrainians, if that were to happen. Given what you've said, this sounds like it's unlikely, but is there any possibility here that Putin might decide to take things even further, that we, we could see a kind of total war or an attempted full-scale invasion of Ukraine? Based on the troops that we see that have been brought up onto the border with Ukraine, this is a possibility. What the question is more about, to a certain degree, is, is what Russia actually wants out of this. We've heard more than Russia talking about wanting to control a place like Mariupol or to take more control over Donbass. Really a desire to determine the future of Ukraine itself. It's our closest neighbor. We've always said that it's our brother country. Putin has said very directly that he doesn't want Ukraine to have the opportunity to join NATO or for NATO to enter into Ukraine anymore. He wants to control the kind of direction of the country's path in the future. What I believe is absolutely inadmissible is the resolution of internal political issues in the former USSR republics through color revolutions, through coup d'etat, through unconstitutional removal of power. And that could point to a much larger attack against the government because it would really need to feel a kind of threat of that magnitude in order to convince the government to, to submit to demands that it really doesn't want to. You know, it just sounds unbelievable that in 21st century Europe, one country could invade another, march on its capital and replace the government. Do we have any sense of what the human cost of something like that might be? I think that if we look at past Russian efforts to do something like this, to really conquer a country if it comes to that uh, on a kind of full-scale attack, then we know that the human cost of this is immense. The two conflicts you can look back at are Russia's war in, in Chechnya in the 1990s in particular. Russia today launched one of its heaviest bombardments yet in Chechnya to try to capture control of the capital Grozny. Fierce battles are raging on the outskirts of the city. Another more recent conflict might be the kind of Russian campaign in Aleppo. After several days of relative calm, Russian jets have resumed heavy bombardment of rebel-held areas. So if we talk about trying to launch a similar kind of conflict in, in Ukraine, these are images and ideas that would shock the world, that would shock, I think, Ukrainians, that would shock Russians, that would shock the West. And it does seem unthinkable to me at this moment, and I think to most people, that we could really come to a point where that's an imaginable path. And inside Russia, are there any voices pushing back on this build-up, trying to warn people, trying to say, we shouldn't be doing this? You know, to a certain degree, not really. Before the 2014 conflict and during it even, there were anti-war marches. And now at a moment when it feels like nobody here really wants a war, uh, at least among you know ordinary people, we don't see a very strong kind of anti-war movement, even among opponents of, of Vladimir Putin. The people who I would expect to be anti-war more often say just, oh, that couldn't possibly happen and discount the idea that there could be a war in the first place. So they'll talk more about maybe the idea that this is, you know, aggressive diplomacy, this is a, a, a bluff, 
or a feint by the Russian government, by Putin, in order to get some kind of concessions from the West. I think it also just shows how people are a little bit tired of the Ukraine topic in Russia, as strange as that might sound, because it's been on television so much for the last, you know, eight years. There is a certain kind of fatigue here where people just feel a little bit worn out with it. Putin's an authoritarian leader, but if a war does kick off and we start to see body bags coming back from Ukraine, will he be answerable to the public? Like, does he have to manage public opinion when he thinks about Ukraine? He does to a certain degree, but I honestly think that he hasn't been at a stronger position in terms of his personal power since 2014. If you look at the Russian opposition, they're all on the run. Uh, Alexei Navalny has obviously been jailed for the last year. We haven't seen large protests. Most of even the the friendly parties, uh, let's say the communists uh, or or other parties that are in the the Russian parliament, have spoken out in support, you know, supporting East Ukraine. This idea that a conflict would somehow motivate or galvanize opposition in Russia, I think are unlikely. All those scenarios you laid out for us for how a war could go represent really serious threats to Ukraine, but also to the stability of of most of Europe. What kind of diplomatic steps are the UK and the US taking to avoid a conflict? So from the beginning, Russia has made it pretty clear that it views the US as the country that they kind of want to negotiate with, uh, that is able to kind of influence and tell everybody else what to do and could give them basically what they want. So, so far we've seen a summit between Vladimir Putin and uh, Joe Biden. This one most recently was a virtual summit. Um, And we've also seen a a series of meetings between Russian and uh, American diplomats where they've sat down to discuss essentially what the Russians are calling their security guarantees. The idea that the U.S. could basically sign off uh, on Ukraine not joining NATO in the future, that uh, the U.S. could sign off on NATO also staying out of Ukraine, not sending weapons, and and various other kind of agreements that that Russia wants, has meant that that there's not too much room to negotiate in these meetings. The discussion today with Minister Lavrov was frank and substantive. This was not negotiation, but a candid exchange of concerns and ideas. The Russians have been so public and aggressive about it that the negotiations almost seem like they're they're set up to fail. They're continuing, but there's a lot of expectation that uh, the two sides are going to find that they can't agree on much. I made clear to Minister Lavrov that there are certain issues and fundamental principles that the United States and our partners and allies are committed to defend. That includes those that would impede the sovereign right of the Ukrainian people to write their own future. So far, what the U.S. has done in recent days is to show that If before they thought that this was a kind of bluff or a negotiating tactic, the U.S. and the U.K. in recent days have really stepped up their support, both verbally, diplomatically and and militarily, uh, for Ukraine and for the eastern flank of NATO. One of the steps that the U.S. and U.K. have floated to try to ward off a conflict here is sanctions. I mean, I thought the Russian economy was already really heavily sanctioned. But what are the options there to make it more painful for Moscow? Uh, There are various options that would be very painful for the government and and for Russians, ordinary Russians as well. We are ready. uh, If Russia would do uh, this aggression against Ukraine, uh, invade a sovereign country, it will be against uh, international law. One idea that's been floated is cutting Russia off from either banking systems, this kind of swift 
um, international messaging system that many banks use, or just blacklisting Russian banks, you know, that many Russians use, that the Russian government also uses. We will be ready, EU and our friends um, in US and others, to uh, impose uh, comprehensive economic and political sanctions uh, never seen before. A second option is to attack Nord Stream, which is the new Russian pipeline that has been basically completed. It hasn't gone online yet. So this is also something that could be sanctioned or could be scrapped totally if the West decides that they kind of want to attack there as well. A third idea is to sanction people who are close to Putin and also oligarchs in the country, people who have billions of dollars and some of that in the West, who really want to have their kids study in the West or send family members to, to, to travel there. Uh, and now would basically be cut off from the kind of creature comforts of Europe or of the U.S., and kind of, in that way, bring the conflict home. In the past, one of Putin's talents has been to, to divide his Western opponents, to peel off Germany from the US or UK, for example. Has that happened again this time? So far, it has happened to a certain degree. It's maybe not arguable that Putin has done this, but that's just that uh, there are certain members of NATO uh, and certain members of the EU and Europe that have a different view on the kind of situation or have a different view on how they can affect it. A big one is Germany, which has much larger, we can say, trading relationship with Russia than a place like the United States. And the Germans have so far been very hesitant to send lethal aid for instance, to Ukraine. And they've also been, I think, a little bit more hesitant just in general on the idea that we're really standing at the precipice of a serious war. If Russia does actually invade Ukraine, if a conflict kicks off, are we likely to see those divisions papered over? I think that if we saw a real conflict kind of kick off and begin, that obviously unity would probably be the most important aspect of the day. This moment where we're still not really sure what's going to happen, you know, where there could be a war, this could be a negotiating tactic, there could be a kind of smaller conflict. It's a little bit difficult to understand what the best way to deter an attack is. Even when Biden spoke earlier this month and he had a bit of a gaffe when he said, you know, it's possible that, you know, there might be less sanctions in case of a minor incursion. Russia will be held accountable if it invades. And it depends on what it does. It's one thing if it's a minor incursion and then we end up having a fight about what to do and not do, etc. That showed how they're trying to gauge what the, the attack could look like. But if we do see a kind of serious attack or, or any kind of real move by Russia into Ukraine, uh, I think a lot of those discussions would likely fall by the wayside. Coming up, what Vladimir Putin really wants and what he might get. Andrew, on our last podcast about the crisis in Ukraine, our colleague Lou Harding said that often when studying Russia, you end up in a field of psychoanalysis, what you might call Putinology, trying to work out what's going on in Vladimir Putin's head. What do you think he, he really wants here? When you read Western press about Russia, you do end up a little bit in Putin's head. And there are a lot of articles about, you know, what does Putin want? And I think that actually, if you read what he says, read what he writes, and, and read what the kind of Russian foreign ministry says as well, Putin tells us fairly often kind of what he wants and what he's after in terms of this buildup near Ukraine and in terms of what he wants to see in the future. Vladimir! Vladimirovich! Putin! He sees, and his goal really is, I think, in the long term, a real kind of reorganization of security in Europe, 
of Russia's place in terms of, you know, who who has influence in sections of Eastern Europe and, and maybe a return to the idea that, yeah, there is a Russian sphere of influence in East Ukraine. There's always been this kind of grudge that's grown in Russia over the fall of the Soviet Union and the idea that Russia was taken advantage of by NATO and by countries in the West uh, when it was really at its weakest moment. And sort of one of the kind of founding, you can call it a myth or founding narratives, is the idea that Russia was promised that NATO would never advance at all eastward. And this has grown into this kind of generational, I'd say, grudge for people like Putin, for a certain group of kind of hawks, that there was this fundamental kind of trick that was played on them at the fall of the Soviet Union. And the time has come really to reverse that. The West is divided, the West is weak, and we see our moment when we can really, I guess, turn back this tide of time. But Andrew, these things that Putin's asking for, you know, that Ukraine be guaranteed never to join NATO, that NATO leave all of Eastern Europe. It's hard to see Ukraine agreeing to any of that or the US and the West giving its blessing to it. So given that, do you see any way forward here to de-escalate? Is there any way out of this that isn't war? I think it depends very heavily on what the West can offer, but also just on what the Kremlin is willing to risk. You know, any conflict, big or small, is always a massive risk. I very much hope, and and pretty much everybody I speak to about this really hopes that there won't be a conflict and that this won't lead to a war and that this could be a kind of a feint or a kind of bluff from the Russian side in order to just get maximum benefit and, and to kind of negotiate a new deal. But at the same time, if we just look at the steps that Russia would have to take to get into a conflict like this, it does feel occasionally like we're kind of going through the checklist of you need to have troops on the border, you need to have, you know, these various units and various capabilities set up, which it increasingly seems like they are. And they're going through a negotiating process that doesn't feel like it could really lead to any kind of positive or successful result. So, you know, in order for this conflict to be avoided at this point, somebody needs to step down. And so far, it doesn't really appear that either side is willing to do that. And and the costs are mounting at the same time. You know, the longer that this goes on, I think the more dangerous that it does become. But, you know, at any moment, because of the unpredictability, there is always a chance that somebody could step back and not let this happen. And living in Russia for as many years as you have, you probably have a decent sense of the character of Vladimir Putin. Is he the kind of person who would back down in, in a situation like this? He does have the ability to step back in certain cases. It seems like something far beyond anything he's ever risked as the leader of this country from when he took power more than two decades ago. Uh, This would be his biggest gambit of all of his time as leadership. And that's one thing that makes me think that maybe uh, this is all a bluff in the end. But the facts on the ground are extremely worrying. So we have to account for the fact that his unpredictability could lead him into a war as well. Andrew Roth, thanks so much. Thank you. 
That was Andrew Roth, The Guardian's Moscow correspondent. You can read all his reporting and analysis from Russia at theguardian.com. And for more on this standoff, next Tuesday evening, UK time, The Guardian's holding a live event discussing whether Russia will invade Ukraine, featuring Andrew as well as senior foreign correspondent Luke Harding, Ukrainian journalist Natalia Gumenyuk, and head of the Ukraine Forum at Chatham House, Orisia Lutsevich. It's next Tuesday, the 8th of February from 8 to 9pm GMT. You can buy a ticket at membership.theguardian.com forward slash events. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Sammy Kent and Alex Atak. Sound design is by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers are Mithley Rao and Phil Maynard. Back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Thank you.